Well, good morning. Again, welcome. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House. And if you are elementary age, you are welcome to go downstairs to the kids' class. They're way ahead of me, so it's good. All right, well, we are going to continue in uh, the sermon series, Path to Paradise. We have been saying that one, one of the ways you can look at the Bible is this sort of path back to paradise that we start off in creation where we're in and f- we're made in and for paradise. Uh, we studied about that in the covenant of creation. Uh, didn't take long for human beings to break that covenant and for them to experience paradise loss. But then God immediately begins a plan to regain that paradise, to get them back to where they were created. And we saw, even with Adam and Eve, this covenant we called the covenant of commencement, uh, this beginning of God redeeming humanity out of their sin and delivering them back to uh, paradise. We then saw the covenant of preservation, which was Noah and his family. And then last week we looked at uh, the covenant with Abraham and Sarah that we called the covenant of promise. And at the center of all these covenants, we said, was the regarding of people. That when people sinned against God, they, they didn't just break a rule, but they broke relationship with God. And so that path back to paradise is going to be a regarding, uh, placing God back at the center. And Abraham is really the pivot point for this in the Old Testament. He, he shows faith like no one has showed up to this point, really, of leaving behind his geographical location, his, his ethnic group, his home and family, and following God. And God even says, let me, let me lead you to a land I will show you. He has no idea where God's going to lead him. But he, he trusts God. He puts faith in God. And uh, in this chapter 17, we get to see more of just, just that promise, what that promise is about. Uh, we also we, we get to see who that promise is for. So yeah, it's for Abraham and his family, but God has a whole bigger vision of who this promise is is going to be for, and then the response to that promise. And I think this is helpful to us because we'll better understand what God's promised us and who this promise is for and how we respond to the promise that God has made to us. So let's look again at Genesis 17. If you've got those Bibles, open those up. Follow along with me. Genesis 17, verse 1. Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him. All right, we'll stop right there. So first part of the promise is Abraham gets God. He gets God. Again, I keep saying, he's, God is re-godding sinful humanity, and Abraham gets God. It says the Lord appeared. That Hebrew word that's being translated Lord uh, in the ESV, when it's a capital L, Lord, it, it, in the Old Testament, is translating the word Yahweh, which is the personal name for God, the covenant name, the name that's given Israel. And so there's this sense in which there's this very intimate relationship, very intimate connection between Abraham and God. But he also says, 
that I'm the God Almighty, right? And the Hebrew there is El Shaddai. And it's this idea of I am the sovereign over the entire universe, both seen and unseen. There is nothing that is not under the sovereign reign of God. And this is the God that Abraham gets, is the personal Yahweh, who's also the El Shaddai. And his response is he falls down on his face in worship. He's been regarded. He's been regarded. He, he doesn't see it as some kind of a transactional thing where he says, okay, God, if you do this for me, I'll fall down and worship you. He's, he, he sees God for who he is, both personal but also sovereign, and his, his response is to bow down on his face and worship God. He has been regarded. Then God reaffirms the promises that he's already made to Abraham back in chapters 12 and 15. Verse 4 says of Genesis 17, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he reaffirms, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be the God of your future generations, right? So that's the first part of the promise. And then he also affirms that he's going to have a people. So he gets God and he gets a people. And so he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to bless you with an offspring. And out of that offspring is going to come a nation. And out of, those nation, out of that nation is going to bless other nations. Now, what's happening here is that, that, that Abraham doesn't have a son through Sarah, his wife, yet. And the promise was given about 25 years before. So God had already told him, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And then 25 years passes and God hasn't done anything. And so Abraham is, is a little bit confused. Like, what, what's going on here? And God's reaffirming, oh, no, I know it's, it's been 25 years, but I haven't forgotten the promise. I am going to make good on this promise. A people is going to come out of your family. And this is different than the promise that, say, God made to Noah, right? God says, hey, Noah, I'm going to take your family, and I'm going to preserve you, and so I want you to build this ark, and then the rest of humanity is, is judged, right? And then he starts fresh with Noah and his family. But with Abraham, he seems to be, his plan with Abraham is, I'm going to start with your family, and I'm going to use your family as a catalyst for blessing in the rest of the people on the planet. And so this, this is the idea that, that Abraham will be blessed, but that his family, he and his family will be a blessing to all nations. He said the same thing 25 years before, back in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be 
blessed. He had already said this 25 years before to Abraham, that he would be blessed, and then that would result in the blessing of other families, other nations. And I want you to hear God's heart here, because he is a God who desires to bless human beings. Remember back in the covenant of creation in Genesis 1, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the first thing he does for, for Adam and Eve after he, he creates them. He blesses them. He blesses Noah and his family, Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sound familiar? It's the same verbiage that, that he has with Adam and Eve, and he, he blesses them. And when he uses this word of blessing, it's not just, I'm going to give you some money, I'm going to give you a nice vacation, but he is saying, I have a remedy for sin, and I'm going to reverse the effects of sin. That, that's the state of blessedness, is when sin has been remedied, and the effects have been reversed, that's, that's blessedness right there. And Jesus shows up 2,000 years after Abraham, and he talks a lot about the state of blessedness. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, this is often called the Beatitudes. Uh, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is proclaiming that, that those that are, that are mourning over the effects of sin, those that, that are, are poor in spirit and struggling because of sin and its, its effects, that, that Jesus has come to remedy sin and to reverse those effects and bring them to a state of well-being, a state of blessedness. And that well-being and blessedness at its center is God. It's God. It's just not a few bucks and a nice vacation. It's, it's God. It's the re-godding of human beings is what brings them into a state of blessedness. And this blessedness is not just for Abraham and his family. It's not just for the nation of Israel that's going to come from Abraham and his family. It's for all the nations. Did you notice that? From, from, from the get-go here. I mean, we're looking at kind of the birthday of Israel as we read these passages about Abraham. But, but, but God's mind is always, I'm not just going to bless you, Abraham, and your family and this nation that's going to come out of you. I'm going to bless all nations. I want all of them to experience the remedy and the reversal uh, of, of sin. And so you, you, you see this idea of a people and that that people eventually is all nations. Now, there's also a place involved. Right? So we got the promise includes God, it includes a people, it includes a place. Now he had, he had told Abraham this again 25 years ago. Back in Genesis 12, he said, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then in that same chapter, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at the oak of Morah, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So back in 12, he said, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram's looking at it, and it's like full of Canaanites. 
It's full of these walled cities and, 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 and people that are militaristic, and they don't really have any military power. And he's like, okay, God, okay, I don't know how you're going to do that. 25 years later, the land's still filled with Canaanites. And he's looking at that. And, and so he's like, I got no offspring, and the land's still filled with Canaanites. Like, what, what are you saying, God? You, your promise, it, it, it's not being fulfilled in the way that Abram thought. But God reaffirms that. In Genesis 17, I'm going to give you the land. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you this land. So you're going to have me, God, you're going to have a people, and you're going to have land. See, what God's doing, he's carving out a piece of paradise. He's carving out a piece of paradise. He's going to redeem a people, and he's going to redeem a plot of land. Just like Noah's covenant was about both redeeming the creation, but also redeeming humanity. And so now God's consistently, he's, he's moving that plan forward. And so, so now he's saying, I'm going to bring a, 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 a nation out of Abraham, this people, and I'm also going to redeem a plot of land that's going to be given to that people. Now, that's the promise, the reaffirmation of the promise. Now, what is Abraham supposed to do? What's the response? Uh, up to this point, it's just been faith. Like, go to the land I will show you. Like, whatever I say, you do it. And, and Abraham has, has done that. Has he been perfect? No, he's not. He's, he's done some pretty crazy things, some, some simple things. Uh, but in the end, he always, he just, he repents, he trusts, he keeps following God. And so now you get to this point where God's going to ask him to do a very concrete thing. And what he's going to ask him to do is to circumcise every male in his family and to, to make sure everyone in the future also circumcises their babies when they're eight days old. That's the response to this covenant promise that God has made. You see it in verse 9 of Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. Okay, so multi-generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised, <laughs> Abraham, 100-year-old man, in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, Abraham's being told, I want you to, you personally, to get circumcised. Right? I want you to cut the flesh off of your male reproductive organ. And I want you to instruct all the males in your family to do the same thing. And from this point forward, every baby, when they're eight days old, every male baby is going to get circumcised. Right? And I'm sure Abraham's like, hey, could I get the rainbow as my sign? You know, like, <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Um, so this is strange to us, perhaps, um, although we still circumcise uh, male babies for hygiene reasons. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily a, an impractical kind of a thing to do. Um, but what is this circumcision about? What, what does it mean? So it means a lot of things, but here's five things, and we're going to go through each of these. So it's, it's a sign of the covenant, 
right? It's a sign of cleansing. It's a sign of commitment. It's a sign of community. And it's a sign of Christ, right? Those five things, at, at the very least, it means those things. There's, there's more things we could probably say, but here's the, these five things. So it's the sign of God's covenant. So this is the external sign of the internal commitment to the covenant. It is, it's this remembrance. It's this reminder of this covenant. It's carved into the flesh of each male in um, the, the nation of Israel. So it's a sign of these promises. And this sign indicates that this covenant is given to them by grace. Notice the baby gets the, cup, gets the sign when they're eight days old. It's eight, eight days old. The baby does nothing to deserve this gracious covenant. Many in ancient cultures circumcised. Circumcision is not new to Israel. Many, many, many other ancient peoples did circumcisions, except for the Philistines, which is why when David's fighting Goliath, he's like, you uncircumcised Philistine. They're one of the few ancient peoples that did not circumcise. But they used circumcision in a different way. They used it as a rite of passage. And so when, when a boy was 12, 13, hitting puberty, they would have to go through a circumcision. And it was like this very memorable rite of passage, right? So just think, this bloody, painful thing that you have to go through that, that is like this very clear milestone. You, you are now an adult, right? And so now God's taking this thing that is a part of ancient culture, much, much like the way he takes sacrifice, animal sacrifice was very common in ancient culture, but he repurposes it and he communicates something totally different. And so here he takes circumcision, kind of repurposes it, and says, look, this covenant's by grace. This baby's done nothing to deserve this covenant, to deserve this relationship, to be in this community. They've done absolutely nothing. They've, they've been given this by grace. And thankfully, they don't remember the circumcision, right? So uh, <clears throat> it's a sign of the covenant. It's also a sign of cleansing, it's a sign of cleansing. It, it's this idea that sinful human beings ne- need to be cleansed. They, they need, the, the, the sinful part of them sort of needs to be cut off, and they need to be freed from that. They need a spiritual surgery of sorts in order to be free from sin and its effects. Um, Moses is quick. Like, 15, like, like 500 years later, Moses picks this up, and he, qu- he quickly he sees the spiritual significance of circumcision. In Deuteronomy 10.16, he says to the people of Israel, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Then in 36, verse 6, he, he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may Live. Moses understands that the sign of the covenant, the symbol of the covenant, is pointing to something deeper in terms of, of spirituality. And, he, and he's, he's saying this is not just this physical thing that you go through that, that make, makes you uh, an Israelite. Uh, it, it's pointing to the cutting away of sin in your heart. And, and when, when the Bible uses heart, it's not talking about the organ that's pumping your blood. It's talking about the mystical center of the human being, the place from which your thoughts are coming from, your emotions are coming from, and even more, your decisions of your will are coming from the center of who you are. And it's saying there's something wrong with your heart. 
There's something sinful with the very center and core of your being, and God needs to go in there and cut that bad part off, that sinful part, and cleanse your heart. And why? So it frees you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And so the, 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 the cleansing for the purpose of re-godding um, the heart. So it's a sign of the covenant, sign of cleansing. It's also the sign of commitment. This is not an easy thing to do. Definitely not when you're a grown man like Abraham, but even to do this to your boy babies, this, this is a big commitment. Um, and, and it is this concrete right where there's just no turning back. You're carving this covenant into your flesh. I mean, some, sometimes God even says, this is the covenant. This circumcision is the covenant. Like, like it, it, it's so tightly connected to this idea of being in covenant with God. There's no turning back. And you might think, that's craziness. That's craziness. But I, I, I think we see something similar going on in our culture today with tattoos. Right? You, people are carving things in their flesh that are important to them. Things that they want to show that these, this is permanence. Okay, my, my, my daughter was home this week, and she did not get a tattoo, but <clears throat> she said, she said that there was this friend of hers that was at, about to get a tattoo with her boyfriend, and they were going to get a matching tattoo, and mom called on the cell phone and was like, don't do it, right? <laughs> like, I know you really like him, but it might not work out, right? But, but she felt like it was, like, this is a permanent thing, and I want to make this permanent, and this is going to be special. But, but so there is a sense in which I think this, this does make sense to us, right? That, that there's a permanence to this, a no turning back to this. And, of course, you can remove tattoos and not circumcisions. But anyway, uh, now the sign of entering Christian covenant is baptism. Aren't you glad? Yep. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great? Come to church membership class if you join the church, and then we'll cut a part of the skin off, you know. That's not what we do at church membership class, right? Um, but we do call you to get baptized, right? And when we baptize you, we baptize you by immersion. We put you t- totally under the water, and we bring you back out, right? Well, usually we bring you back out. But, but there's a lot of meaning there, but one of the meanings there is that your whole entire life is being given over in faith to God. Like if, if there's like a little part of your hair that's like poking out, like I just put you a little further deeper in. I just push you deeper in. I make sure you're all wet, right? And not because there's something magical happening in that water. I'm telling you, that water is not magical at all. But it's, it's showing that your whole life is given over in faith to God. And there's, it's something akin to, to what's happening here is, as, they, as they're circumcising they're saying this is, this is a no-turning-back kind of a commitment and response to God's covenant. Number four, it's a sign of community. In order to, to, for your family to be a part of the community of Israel, every male had to be circumcised. You saw that in Genesis 17, 14. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, it's, so it's, it's a serious sign of the, of the covenant that, that there's, there's like, there's no wiggle room, right? It is a sign of being in the community or outside the community. Um, again, I mentioned David saying to Goliath, you uncircumcised Philistine. It's part of him saying, you are outside the covenant 
of God. We see Paul actually circumcising Timothy, uh, his young protege in Acts 16, so that when they go into a Jewish region to preach the gospel, that the Jews will actually receive Timothy as a minister of the gospel. It was definitely a, you're either in or you're out. Notice that uh, the circumcision was never only for ethnic Jews. This, this is interesting. Even in Genesis 17, it's saying um, that every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So the, one of the troubling things about that is it's talking about slavery, right? which would take a whole nother sermon for me to talk about slavery in the Bible and how that works and blah, blah, blah. But if you want to talk about it after the sermon, I'm happy to do that. But what I do want you to see is, is that they're bringing in people that are outside ethnic Israel already in Genesis 17 and saying, no, you're also part of the covenant community of God. And so it was always for the nations. It was never just for ethnic or nationalistic Israel. We wanted to bless Abraham, bless his family, bring him a nation out of that, and then bless the nations and bring them into the covenant community as well. And so uh, baptism and communion, again, for us, are the signs of the new covenant, the Christian uh, covenant, and this is part of how we show who's in, who's out. We're doing, we're doing a similar thing with those uh, sacraments. We're, we're saying who's in and who's out. Um, when people respond in faith to Christ, we say, you need to get baptized. We believe King Jesus wants you to get baptized. And when they say, nope, I'm not getting baptized, then we say, huh, that's interesting. I, I'm not so sure that they've committed to King Jesus. Now, we don't know for sure, but it does, it, it does kind of indicate that they're not interested in following through in obedience to King Jesus. And so it's, it's, it, there's a bit of a vetting that goes on there in terms of whether or not people are willing to be baptized. Communion is the ongoing sign of covenant, right? And so as you, when you take this, you're signaling to people in this room, I'm part of the Christian uh, covenant community. And so when folks are not behaving consistently with what it would mean to be a disciple of Jesus, and we've already reached out to them and said, we love you, we want you to repent, we want you to come out of that uh, sinful lifestyle or whatever it is the person that's doing that's not consistent with the covenant, and they say, no, 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 I'm going to keep living however I feel like living, even though it's against Scripture and against what King Jesus would want, then we'll sit down with them and say, we don't want you to take communion anymore. We want you to repent, we want you to come back, and then will re-enter into uh, taking communion with the covenant community, right? And again, why is that? Because we're signaling, when we take this, we're signaling we're all in. We're a follower of Christ. We're in the covenant community. It's also a sign of Christ. The New Testament picks up circumcision in a multitude of ways, uh, but I'm going to talk about just one, Colossians 2. Uh, Paul is talking to Christians, and he says, In him, talking about Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And so he's talking to, most, most likely he's talking to Gentile Christians who are not circumcised in their actual physical flesh, and he's saying, you don't need that now. That, 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 that sign of that covenant is over. But what you have is you have a circumcision that comes from Christ. And he says that you've had a cutting away of the body of the flesh. So when he says that, he's not talking about some, some kind of physical piece of skin. He, he's talking about the, the, the sin, right? He's, he's saying you, you, what, what sin was, was doing to you, right? The penalty of sin, the power of sin, that's now just been cut away by Jesus. And this is the good news of the gospel, right? That, that what Christ has done on the cross is, is he's paid for the penalty of sin. He's also giving us grace over the power of sin, and this has been cut away from the heart of the Christian. And it's not because of the you know, bloody, painful cutting of the Christian. It's the bloody, painful cutting of the divine Son of God at the cross. This is the Christian circumcision. Right? It's done because of the bloody cutting of Jesus on the cross. And so the Christian sign uh, for the covenant that we are in is, is baptism. Right? We are literally enacting with our bodies the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. We're saying this is what we're believing in to rescue us from sin and its effects. This is what we believe is bringing us to the state of blessedness. Right? It is the remedy. It is the reversal of sin. Sin's power and penalty has been cut away from us by grace through faith. And that circumcision that, that God instituted with Abraham is a, is a sign, it's a symbol that's pointing forward to that reality that we read about in the New Testament. So what's our response? So these, these concepts should sound pretty familiar because uh, there's so many parallels with what God's doing now in uh, his church, right? So you, you, you should be hearing gospel and family and mission. All of that is in the covenant with Abraham, right? Just as Abraham was, was called to believe in this promise that was being given to him that would bless him and bless the nations, you're being called to believe in what Christ has done for you at the cross, and believing that, that he has forgiven you now and he will forgive, forgive you tomorrow and the next week and the next month and throughout all of eternity. You're called to believe in that promise. If you believe in that, you've, you've trusted in Christ, then you're called to profess that with baptism. Right? If you've entered into that covenant by grace through faith, you're then called to profess that right? and to enter into this covenant community uh, through baptism. The way that works here is that people come to a Meet Mercy House class, uh, and we will we'll be having one of those on November 16th. So you can RSVP on your little card there that's on the back of the chairs and let us know, hey, I'm coming. I, I want to get baptized, or I at least want to find out more about what baptism is about and how this, uh, how this works. But it is the, 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 the pattern that we see in the New Testament as people profess faith in Christ they are then called to, to, to show that covenant-making uh, with God through baptism. You're then called to live consistently with the covenant. Just as God expected Abraham to then live consistently in the covenant, it wasn't like, oh, sweet, I got circumcised. Now I can do whatever I want. See you, God. 
right? That's not what God was saying, right? And that's certainly not at all what God is, is hoping that's going to happen in the church either. Oh, I prayed a little prayer. I got baptized. Oh, I'm good. I'm out of here. Do what I want. I'm going to live my de-godded life. No. No, that, that's just the beginning of living the re-godded life. Now in covenant community, in, in relationship with God and in re- relationship with others that are in the church. And one of the ways to live consistently with that covenant is to take the good news to the nations. Take the good news to the nations. One of the things you see in the covenant with Abraham is God's missionary heart. He has on his mind, he's going to reach the nations. That through Abraham, he is going to raise up a family that's going to raise up a nation that's going to raise up a Messiah that's going to be for the nations. It's in Jesus that God fulfills these promises to Abraham. Right? When, when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 28, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that's a real El Shaddai kind of statement. Like, I am an absolute authority over heaven and earth. And what does he tell them to then do? Those of you in discipleship groups, you studied this a couple of weeks ago, this verse, memorized it, right? And he says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Jesus is standing in the continuity of these covenants in that moment. And he's saying, now the blessing that was first given to Abraham his family, Israel, now is going to the nations. No longer is it a, hey, come and see, check out Israel, look how we're carving out a piece of paradise. No, we're taking paradise to them. And we're going out to uh, the nations. And so part of every Christian's call is to participate on some level of getting the gospel to the nations, every one of us not just a few you know, special ops Christians. Every Christian is called to participate in getting the gospel to the nations. And that means your neighbor, right? That means your friend on your, uh, your, your dorm floor. That, that means your colleague at work. That, that means when we do free rides in a few weeks, as, as we're giving rides to, to over 1,000 students, uh, it means those that work with young life and teenagers around the different high schools in the area. Um, but it also means taking it to the unengaged nations, the unreached nations of the world. Um, it's my mission to get every one of you to download the app Joshua Project. I mention this like every three weeks, okay? And so this this ministry tracks the unreached, unengaged people groups of the world. And it'll remind you every day, hey, pray for this people group. It's a really helpful, helpful resource. And the way they describe unengaged, unreached, so unreached area is a place that has less than 2% of Bible-believing, gospel-centered kind of disciples of Jesus, okay? Less than 2%. Um, when you're less than 2%, you don't really have adequate numbers of people and resources uh, to keep that gospel witness moving at any kind of a, a, a quick rate, right? And so you need outside help. You need people to come from the outside who are, have a greater than 2% to come in and help uh, to, to, to help with the adequate gospel witness. New England is one of those places. We're an unreached 
place. That's why sometimes you hear in my voice a little Texas draw, right? I'm not from here. I have been here 20 years, but I'm not from here. Why did I come here? Why did I move 2,000 miles to come and plant a church in Amherst, Massachusetts? Because this place is unreached. There's so few churches in this region. And especially in the five college region. There are very few Christians here. Very few Bible-teaching, gospel-centered kinds of churches. And so this place needs uh, ministry. Uh, in, a, in a really critical way. And so what can happen in, in unreached places is, is that churches have a hard time paying for ministry and they're getting funds from the outside. We are in that predicament right now. And 20 years later, we're, we're still uh, raising funds from the outside. Part of that is because we have a, a large college student base, all right? And you're all living on loans and uh, you can't give all that much. But um, but it, it is something that is a reality here in this place, although it is changing. And so last budget year, we saw that we covered 60% of our budget. And right now, I checked with, with Cindy, our bookkeeper, last night, and she says we're right at 66% in this budget year. And so there, there's some movement there, and, and I think we can do it, and I think we should long for that. I think we should long for that, to, 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 uh, to, to cover 100% of our main budget, and then any monies that comes in from the outside, we can use that to then fund interns and training students as they stay around for a couple of years, and then we send them out, right, and use that extra money for getting the gospel out, not just trying to pay our, our pastor here in this region. And so that's going to require working people to get really serious about giving to if you're not tithing to start moving toward tithing make some kind of a percentage goal each year to move toward that it's also going to require college students to give many of you are giving uh, when we start, set up text to give a lot of students started giving because you know you don't carry cash and so you're like i wish i could give but i don't have any you know my, well now people are using text to give and sometimes I think when students come into churches, they think, well, those working people, they pay for everything and we're here for a free ride. Um, even free rides cost money, okay? And so we, we definitely, we, we need students that, that are members of our church, that are regular attenders of this church to take seriously giving in this, in this church, uh, partly because we need to get the gospel to this region, right? These campuses, these communities, Many, many people, they do not even know the gospel. They're not rejecting the gospel. They don't know it. They don't know it to reject it. And so there's a really critical need for the gospel to go out in this region. But we would be considered unreached, not unengaged. Now, unengaged is less than 2%, but there's not enough outside people to really help get the gospel witness to an adequate level. Uh, we spent some time this last spring in a, a city in Central Asia that... Uh, the, the country where that city resides is about 80 million people, and they, they only have like 6,000 Christians in a country of 80 million. Um, in the very city where we were, which is about t probably 20 million uh, with undocumented folks, uh, is between 500 and 1,000 uh, Christians in that city of 20 million. And so... One, one of the, actually, the, the student, a couple of students that were here in our church that went there to serve 
were having a conversation with someone, telling them about the gospel, and they were very interested, and, and, and the person was like, I'm very interested, but I could never receive Christ because my family would disown me. And they said, well, would you like to, to talk to a Christian that's from your actual nation? And he said, you mean there are people that are from my nation that are Christians? So he had no idea that there were actually people that were from his ethnic group, his country, that were Christians on the planet. Right? That's an unengaged place. And so as we spent time there and, and talked to a lot of people that were open to, to talking about the gospel, um, I was talking to one of the missionaries there, and we hatched a little plan for next summer, 2020. And so I want to take 25 people for a six-week experience in that very city. And so three of those six weeks, you'll be in a university program where you do language studies in the first half of the day, and then you go see cultural sites the second half of the day. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's the three week of the six week experience. The other three weeks, you're just hanging out with people that you've met and you're telling them about Jesus. And so we're gonna, we're gonna, we've got some information that, that you can pick up. Uh, we're going to do a November 10th meeting after each service. You can find out more. I need a go team and I need a send team. I need a go team of people that are willing to take six weeks of their life in the summer and spend it for the glory of God and the good of that city. I also need a send team who will say, I will pray for those people that go and I will give them money so that they can, can pay for the $3,500, which is not that bad, which covers everything of those six weeks, including your travel. And so as a church, we, we want to get the gospel to the nations. Absolutely, we want to get it here, too. We want to get it to the campuses. We want to get it to these communities. But we don't just want to be doing it here. We want to take it to some unengaged places. So gospel, family, mission. We're reminded of that gospel family mission as we come to this table, the communion table, on the night on which Jesus is betrayed, the night before his death on the cross, as they are remembering actually another covenant that you'll find out about next week. And he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He knows the only way that he will remedy sin and reverse its effects is if he himself is cut on the cross that he is able to provide the, quote, circumcision of Christ for the human heart. This will be required for those humans to re return to paradise. In the same way, he takes the cup. After he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. His idea was that they would not just be something that individuals experience, but that it would also create a covenant community. God's always been redeeming a people, right? He's redeeming a people. And so he's, he's still redeeming a people, except, except now this people is from the nations. And because of what Christ has done on the cross, which is available to all who place their faith in him, he is now bringing together a people that is from the nations. And it's one of the blessings that we have in our church. There are many nations that are represented here. And we get to come around 
this common belief in what Christ has done for us to be family together. But we also get to take that to the nations, understanding that God always had in mind that the gospel would go out to the nations. It wouldn't just stay in one people in one place. So if you've never trusted in Christ, you've never believed in what he's done for you on the cross, I want to encourage you to do that. To ask for your forgiveness of of your sins and to enter into relationship with him. And again, that's the beginning, right? It's not just like, sweet, I'm all set. I've got got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. It's I've entered into a covenant with God and with his community, and now I get to follow him day in and day out, week in and week out, a covenant that is going to remain both in this life and the life to come. And this is what we're remembering here as we take this bread and we take this cup. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just the precious promises that are in this covenant and how they reverberate into our own lives and how you made good on this promise. And you made good on this promise by allowing yourself to be cut, to, to, to provide through your death on the cross the circumcision of Christ. Lord, cut our hearts such that our hearts are made free from sin's penalty, from sin's uh, effect, sin's power that we might worship you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, that we might love you with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Lord, we confess to you, we cannot do that except by your grace that comes through the cross. And so thank you for what this bread and this cup remind us of, what you've done for us in the covenant that we're in with you and with one another. And we pray a blessing over this time. We pray it would, it would be a little piece of paradise, just, just worshiping you alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.